singing over his, uh, his people. Uh, I think is a one that, that fits well with our, our lesson today as we're talking about uh, intimacy, connection to, to God. And so I want to uh, begin today by reading from uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. And uh, I'll have this up on the screen for you. Our, our I am statement, as we come to our last I am statement in the Gospel of John, uh, uttered by Jesus, is I am the vine. And uh, it's been kind of interesting as we've gone through this series that I've got to uh, begin each sermon um, by providing some context, whether it be context of where Jesus is when he speaks it, who he's talking to, or sometimes, as in this instance, a uh, theological context, a, a, a belief, a knowledge that the, his audience had that provides insight into what it is that he says. So uh, we're going to pick up here in Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is God talking to his people. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than, than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now, I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain upon it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. This is not the only time uh, that God refers to or describes his people, the nation of Israel, as a vineyard or a, a vine. But it is the most detailed uh, description of, of sort of what is the dynamic that is taking place here. That, that God says, Israel... I have cared for you as, as I care, as, as a farmer would care for a vineyard. Okay, I've cleared the land, which certainly fits uh, with going back to Joshua and the land being cleared. I've planted you. I've put you in there. I've established you. I've cared for you. I've protected you. But the grapes I'm tasting, certainly by the time of Isaiah, are bad. The fruit is bad. You are not living up to your potential. You're not living up to my hopes and my dreams that I poured into you. That all my work that I invested in you has come to nothing. And I'm going to scrap it and start over. 
And so we see that played out in Israel's history. There's Jerusalem is destroyed, as the walls are broken down, as invaders come in and take them away captive. And, uh, and, and that prophecy is fulfilled. Another example of uh, God describing Israel, his people, as a, uh, a vine is in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. I'll just read this for you. God here says, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Grapes were just a really central part of um, ancient culture. You know, it was. I, I grew up in a part of the world where everybody, it seemed, had a lemon tree in their backyard, either an apple tree or a lemon tree. The older houses where I grew up had lemon trees. The more recent ones seem to have apple trees. I think in Jesus' day, it was um, everybody had a grapevine. Yeah. And it would give you fruit. It would give you, you could drive for raisins. You could turn it into wine. It gave you drinks. Um, and, and so that was just a staple. Everybody knew how to care for, um, for a grapevine. And how to invest in it, how to pick out a good one, how to plant it and tend to it, how to prune it, how to get it to grow, to give good, good grapes. And so God uses this picture. Jesus uses this image as well. But when God uses this image in the Old Testament, almost exclusively it is a, a moment of judgment against Israel. He, he seldom says, you have given me the very best grapes and the very best wine and you sparkle in the cup and I'm so glad that I invested in you. Usually is something has gone wrong with the grapes that I planted. And so when Jesus comes in John 15 and verse 1, and uh, this is our text, if you want to turn there, we're going to be mostly in John 15 the rest of the morning. He says, I am the true vine. Now, if you're the true something, you're usually saying you're not the false something. Okay? Um, and, and you don't need to say you're the true something unless there is a false something. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's making his disciples aware that there is a false vine, that he is in contrast to the false vine. What is that false vine? I believe it's the, the nation of Israel. That, that many of the Jews, many of Jesus' opponents are saying, we're Israelites. We're descendants of Abraham. Because of that, it's almost like God owes us something. Because of that, our relationship with God is secure. Because we are His people. And Jesus says, no, I'm the true vine. And so he criticizes the nation. He's saying, don't put your faith in the nation. Don't put your faith in your heritage. Put your faith in me. Your future is with me, not with the nation. Now, I could just keep going in that direction as we have an election on Tuesday, but I won't. But it's important for us to see, I think, this point that Jesus is um, 
putting his disciples, putting his followers in a position where they have to make a choice. And I think we've seen that consistently as we go through this I Am series, that there are lots of different breads in the world. But Jesus is the bread of life. There are lots of different lights in the world, but Jesus is the light of the world. There are lots of different shepherds, but Jesus is the good shepherd. And there are lots of different vines and vineyards out there, but Jesus is the true vine. And so this this revelation, as Jesus reveals himself to his followers, to the crowds, um, as as he goes through that, uh, makes this effort to convince them of who he is, the crowds, the people have to respond by making choices, and we're in that same boat. That we have to, to, we should pause and consider Is that really a choice that I'm making? And so, as Jesus continues with this analogy in John 15, um, he fleshes it out a little bit more. It's more than just the vine. Because I don't think that has a lot of meaning to us by itself. Okay? The first detail that we're given is immediately follows. I am the vine. And my father is the gardener. Now, when Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, there really wasn't weren't any other characters in there. There were sort of like the thieves and the robbers and the that that wanted to sneak in, or the hired servant. But here he's he's got two characters in his description. He's got himself as the vine and his father as the gardener. And so God the Father has a job. He has a task in this scenario. And it's really more like a parable than some of the others. The father is active in caring for the vine. I think this is the the first um, point that that we want to make. Before we jump into pruning and the act of cutting and, and what that's involved, the first thing to notice is that God actively is caring for his vine and for the branches and concerned about the fruit. I read somebody uh, this week, and I agree with this statement, they said, you never care or pay as much attention to your plants as when you're walking around with pruning shears in hand. Because when you have those pruning shears, you're examining them, and you're going, is this good, is this bad? Will I cut it now? Will I wait and see how it turns out? What is the shape of the plant? Is it growing inward? Is it growing outward? Um, Is it just growing too much and I just need to cut that growth back so it'll put that energy into producing fruit? And and you consider that plant before you make that snip. And then you go along to the next plant and you give it all that attention. The rest of the time, when you don't have those pruning shears in your hand, you drive up in your car and you look at your garden and it looks pretty good. Oh, I like that. I like those colors. Oh, that's getting a bit bushy over there. I'll have to go look at it later. But when you have those pruning shears, now you're paying attention to the details of the plants. And so God, the gardener, has his pruning shears, but he is actively involved in caring and tending for the garden. And, and he doesn't do it in a destructive way. Sometimes we, we I, I don't know, if, I hope we don't have a picture of, of a God that just wants to, is looking for an excuse to destroy things. 
But the picture here is of a God that, that has this plant. And he says, I want it to grow. I want it to be beautiful. I want it to bear fruit. And how can I get it to do that? That's the mindset of a gardener when he comes to the garden with the pruning shears in his hand. And that's the attitude that God the gardener comes to us with. That he looks at us and he, 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 he cares for us and he says, what can I do to help this person grow, to be productive, to, to reflect my character and my nature in all that they do? Where do I need to snip? Where do I need to, to let in more light? Or, or uh, what do I need to take away? And so God is active in caring for the vine. And it's interesting to me that he cuts off both the branches that aren't growing and he cuts off or prunes the branches that are producing fruit. Either way, there's some cutting that's involved. Jesus and his followers are not a wild vine growing all over the place. Uh, Curtis, were you involved in, in getting that grapevine off the fence out here on the driveway? That's a job, right? I, I hate vines. I mean, I struggle with this analogy here. Where, you know, in my garden, I, I hate vines. Um, and I don't, I don't agonize over those when I've got the shears in my hand. But... Um, but, but that wild grapevine out there, it gets everywhere. And it in itself becomes destructive. You know, it, it starts squashing out the other plants and taking over. It'll kill trees and stuff if it's enough. But the Jesus vine is cared for in a productive manner. Now that sounds nice. But the branches that God prunes to make the, the vine, to make the grapevine productive, are you and me. Right? And, and, and there's something about pruning and cutting and me that, that sounds a little too much like surgery with recovery time and drugs and pain. And, and that doesn't sound particularly pleasant. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 7, John the baptizer at the beginning of his ministry told the crowds as they came out to him as they were baptized for repentance... And, and they're wanting to turn their lives around. They're coming to be baptized, to rededicate themselves, to commit themselves to living for God. And John says, this is all great. This is good. I'm glad you're here. But produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And I think that word repentance is a good one for us to understand what Jesus is talking about uh, when he says that the grapevine or the vine is, is pruned. Because repentance... Uh, literally it means like turning yourself around. And so he says, if you're heading in this direction and you repent, then you need to cut that off. You need to let go of that direction, turn yourself around and go this way. You need to give that up and you need to take this on. And that's what God's pruning intends to do for us. And so I think that, that, that we as followers of Jesus need to intentionally adopt a lifestyle of self-examination leading to repentance. Because then we can produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I think that's the pruning process, that God's Spirit, as we, we go through that process, both the self-examination, that the Spirit reveals what needs to be,
taken away. And it also gives us the strength to be able to make those changes in our lives. We need to leave ungodly attitudes and behaviors behind so that we can grow in the image of God. One thing is abundantly clear to me as we consider Jesus' I am statement, I am the vine, that he expects our relationship with him to change our lives. You go, really? Because like vines aren't the most dynamic thing in the world. Um, But when we follow Jesus, there is an expectation that we will bear fruit. And so what is that fruit? You see, we're told explicitly what the, who the gardener is. Okay, The gardener is God. I am. Jesus is the vine. But what is the fruit? It's never defined for us uh, precisely. And this is a growth group question. So if you're paying attention now, you'll have a head start on those that, that aren't here. Um, I believe in these first four verses as John, as Jesus talks about fruit, that it, it's more along the lines of the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of, the char- of character. It's the fruit of, of living our lives righteously in a way that both honors God and glorifies God. Um, sometimes, maybe, maybe you're being accustomed to, as I was, I know for much of my life, whenever I hear the word, bear fruit, it meant go door knocking and, and uh, bring in new converts. And, and that was what bearing fruit meant, was bringing in new converts uh, to, to the church, to Christ. But I think here it, it's character that Jesus is talking about. In verse 8, he says that the fruit we produce shows us to be Jesus' disciples. And and so it shows us to be his disciples because we've made changes, okay? Because we're not the same. We're not there yet. Um, We're we're not who we used to be. We're now his followers. And we don't just say we're his followers, but rather the fruit we're bearing demonstrates that we're his followers. Now down in verse 16, I think there's a different way that it's used. In verse 16, he says... To, to those with him, the twelve, I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. I think here, this choosing, setting aside, appointing, and sending is, is evangelistic. You know, there he's saying, go you know, harvest fruit, um, that fruit that will, will last. And so I think it's a different use of the term there. But when he says, I'm the vine, at the beginning of the chapter, he's primarily saying the fruit that we're going to bear is that our lives are different. And so there's an expectation of change in our lives as we produce the fruit of our relationship with Jesus. There's so much in this this passage. Um, I only get to preach on it once. So rather than dwell on the details of each of the the 17 verses, um, I want to try and summarize the the primary message 
of the gospel, uh, of the, the passage. You see, when Jesus says that he's the vine, he's, he's um, distinguishing himself from the root, he's distinguishing himself from the branches and from the fruit. Okay, so we have these four parts of the plant. And Jesus, as the vine, is the connection with the root. The branch, we're told, can't live by itself. It'll wither and it'll die. The only way that the branch can live, the only way the branch can produce fruit, is to be connected, to be joined to the vine. Because the vine is what draws the nutrients, draws the sap, draws everything that the plant needs up from the root and distributes it to the branch, allowing it to produce fruit. And so in verse 4, Jesus offers this invitation. He says, remain in me as I remain in you. Remain. Other words we could use there are dwell, abide. I think the message translation uh, uses the phrase, make your home in me as I dwell with you. Basically, stay in Jesus. And, and then there's this comforting promise that Jesus isn't going anywhere. He's going to stay in us as long as we want him. And so just as branches totally depend on their connection to the vine for their life, for their health, for their fruit, we totally depend upon Jesus. And so we remain in him. I think sometimes, perhaps most of the time, it's hard to have that much humility. Um, it's hard to say, I totally depend upon Jesus. Without him, I could do nothing. Because we know there are lots of people in the world that don't have Jesus in their life that seem to be accomplishing great things, right? During the pandemic, there were weeks where we couldn't come and we couldn't worship with other Christians and, and you know, we survived that. Maybe we missed the, was it Jesus that we missed? Was it the, the worship that we missed? Was it the faces, the other people and community that we missed? But the reality is that, that if we're going to trust in our own strength, our own abilities, then we're not going to get very far. Certainly not going to get very far in eternity, but, but how important is Jesus to our lives? Do we relate to Jesus when he says, you're the branch and I'm the vine, and apart from me, you can do nothing? I think we can try to be good, we can try to be righteous, we can try to be kind, we can, but, but if the Holy Spirit is real and does anything for us, and we're going to say without that, we can't do anything. So remain in him. In verse 9, he says something similar. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. 
And then he closes that paragraph from starting in verse 9 down through verse 17. He closes that paragraph by saying, This is my command. Love each other. So as we look at these 17 verses as a whole, it seems to me that some of us, if we were to sit down and read it all and study it, we'd say, what's it about? Some of us, I think, would come away and we would say, uh, it's, look how much Jesus talks about love in this chapter, in this passage. Look, look how, how much God loves him and he loves us and we're to love others and we're to love him and, and we're to remain in his love. Like Love is just dripping off this page. That's what Jesus is talking about. But I think that there would also be some who are going to notice the expectation that the followers of Jesus bear fruit. You're to live in a particular way. They would also perhaps notice that Jesus says, if you, you love me, you'll keep my commands. Um, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. That's verse 10. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And uh, we could go down and we could look at these expectations between drawing, uh, between growing fruit, between um, obeying, keeping commands. And we could say the important thing about this chapter is that we do what we're told to do. That, that we live lives in a particular way that honors and glorifies God, that imitates Jesus. And, and, and so we could, we would both be right, wouldn't we? we, we both those things are there. And I think that's the, the place, the awkward place that we find ourselves sometimes, is that we want to say, is it about love or is it about this obedience and following Jesus' example as though they're two separate things? But Jesus said both things. He said both things at the same time. And, and so we need to find a way of bringing those together. It's not one or the other. It's how do both of these come together? How do we both emphasize love and honor the expectation that we bear fruit and that our lives reflect or demonstrate that we are Jesus' disciples. The fact is that we can't abide in Jesus and then just live however we want, right? Like that's not abiding in Jesus. Um, but likewise, we can't focus on living a particular way and think that because we're living that particular way, that Jesus must be so pleased with us. Because that's not how it works either. It's important to note that Jesus is speaking to people who are already in to people who have been following him for years. It's really, I said it was before, it's the 12. It's really the 11. Judas has already left the upper room to betray him. He's it's Jesus and the 11. And it's interesting the way he describes his relationship with them. In verse 15, he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. The servant is the one that, that has to follow those commands, right? Where Jesus says, do this, do that. And you're like, yes, sir, how high should I jump? And he says, I no longer call you servants. 
Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. And so the relationship changes when they're friends. Now when he tells them to do something, it's not because he has authority over them. It's because he's their friend. That they want to do it and that they know that he's telling, it to, telling them to do it for their best interests. I know we have friends that are asking us to do things all the time, and we roll our eyes, and we groan, and we go, oh, no, not again. But that, that, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. So Jesus is talking to people who have already experienced his love. And it's to these people that he says, stay where you are, remain in me, remain in my love. This is the type of relationship that I want with you, friends. And to remain in me, allow God's pruning to shape your life and obey my commands, follow my teaching. I think that's how we bring those two together. That our relationship with Jesus motivates our obedience in a way that obedience can never create love in a person's heart. And so, just to give you a summary as we we wind up, The first point I have, I think it's the main point of this this imagery. I am the vine. And because Jesus is the vine, then remain in Jesus. Remain, and to remain in Jesus is to remain in his love. And that's, um, that I think is the primary message of this image. But it's not the only message. Expect to be pruned is number two. That because God cares for us, he'll shape us, mold us into his image. And the third point is look to bear fruit. I think firstly that is bear fruit in the way that we are transformed, the way that our character is molded into the character of God. But also there's a, there's an undercurrent, an expectation that we share our faith, share the gospel. We talked about last week. And look to bear fruit in that as well. Because God's pruning us for both purposes. The last question that we need to answer is simply, how do we remain in Jesus? If you read through this passage, the word remain just sort of jumps off the page at you. Remain here, remain there. Remain in Jesus. Make your home there. How do we do that? I think the first thing is to be connected to Jesus is that we're connected to the body of Christ, which is the church. The Apostle Paul brings that out in his letters. Like we can't say there is no, nothing in Scripture that creates a precedent or a concept of a standalone Christian. The Christians, the followers of Jesus in Scripture, are always connected to the body of Christ. Now, I'm not saying the church is the vine. Don't get me wrong. The church is not the vine. The the vine is Jesus. But there is a connection. 
the church functions as part of that process, however it all comes together. Even if it's just as we come around the Lord's table, as we will do in a little bit, as we're reminded of the, the love that Christ have, that he would lay down his life for his friends, that, that, the, that Christ hosts the meal that he's present in the assembly and around the table in a very special way. And so the church has a function of bringing Jesus together with his people. So that's number one. And, and obviously that's, you know, I, I, I recorded this last night for those that are watching on a video. Right? So when I say connect with the church, it doesn't just mean be in the seat, right? You, they're no less faithful for watching church on a video screen. Um, but, but they have the challenge of saying, okay, it's good to watch on the video screen. How do I connect with the church and what the church is doing? But we have the same thing here. Just because we're here doesn't mean we're involved in what the church is doing. So there, there's, there's certainly one way that we remain in Jesus is by remaining connected through the church, through the body of Christ. The second is, uh, while that's a function of the church, um, that the church takes that responsibility, there's also a need to take personal responsibility for our relationship with Christ. And that is our spiritual disciplines. It's our time with God's word and in prayer. It's our dedication to, to spending time in the Gospels, to knowing Jesus, to being connected to the vine. And if we don't make that something that we value, that's important to us, that if we don't make an effort to do those things, then at some point we're going to drop off the vine. I was hoping that out the front, after our work day last week, there was a great big pile of brush and branches and stuff out there. I was like, oh, that's a great sermon illustration. Then the town came and got it during the week and took it away. But, but there was a big pile out there. But we don't want to be on that sort of spiritual pile of saying, yeah, I'm out here because I got disconnected from Jesus. And we have to bear that responsibility ourselves. And so this week and beyond, may you remain in Jesus' love. For he loves you just as the Father loves him. May you be blessed.